Today is February 28th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Julie Cower. She's a professor of molecular pharmacology, physiology, and biotechnology at Brown University. Her lab combines slice work and behavior to understand the molecular mechanisms involved in synaptic plasticity and modulation of neural excitability in drug addiction, relapse, and memory. Hi, Julie. Hi. Uh, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Uh, the usual suspects. And then we've got uh, Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we've got new today, Denard Simmons, who's a grad student. He's a PhD student in our neurobiology program. Hi, Denard. Hello. Okay, so, uh, Julie, you've, um, just by way of intro, you've championed uh, the idea that addiction is based on drugs of abuse hijacking synaptic plasticity mechanisms and key brain circuits. You are responsible for finding one of the few cases of potentiation at a GABAergic synapse, which I guess is sort of short form referred to as LTP-GABA. Is that everyone's short form? And that was in the VTA. So first off, uh, I'd love to talk about why the idea of potentiation of inhibitory synapses lagged kind of behind um, excitatory LTP as a useful idea in information coding in the CNS, just sort of a general thing. And then, we, of course, we have to get to some really exciting stuff. Um, in the last few years, you found that LTP-GABA at VTA dopamine neurons is sensitive to drugs and to stress. Um, and now you're reporting, sort of hot off the press, um, a mechanism involving kappa opioid that may present a powerful way to attack relapse I guess clinically, ultimately. Um, I'd love for you to piece us through that work. And finally, just as a general thing, since we have so many people here who are sort of key players and interested in this stuff, I thought um, I'd ask you, since LTP-GABA is so universally sensitive to drugs of abuse um, that themselves have very different mechanisms, are we, are we to view this as a sort of a final um, common pathway for addiction? mechanism Has it? Is that right to say? Um, where else has it been reported? Can you Say something about that? Yeah, so I think probably the reason that it's lagged is that the first description of LTP and LTD were at excitatory synapses uh, in hippocampus and, and in cerebellum. Now it's a long time ago, 30, 40 years ago now. Um, and so and so I think it was that kind of established a paradigm. It was easy for technical reasons to it's it's easier for technical reasons in a lot of brain areas to look at excitatory synapses. Um, it's because you can use an extracellular recording technique that's easier to do than intracellular recording, and it's actually pretty hard to do that with a GABAergic synapse. So for technical reasons, it was just easier and faster to look in many brain areas using this approach um, at excitatory synapses and just not pay attention to the inhibitory ones. And furthermore, the inhibitory ones are often blocked in studies of excitatory transmission so that you won't interf uh, have interference of that. So, so it was often just not seen or ignored. Although, actually, the very first LTP paper in hippocampus um, in the 1970s by Bliss and Lomo shows an effect that is, I don't want to go into it, but it's called ES coupling, and I believe it. Uh, we're, we're putting forward the idea, anyway, that um, it's caused in part by synaptic plasticity at synapses onto interneurons. So a GABAergic mm -hmm. synapse is involved in that, although it's not GABAergic plasticity. So, you know, I'm, I was trying to think when you were asking this question of the first example of excited of LTP at an excited an inhibitory GABAergic synapse, and I'm afraid that I'm probably not going to get this right. But I know it was described in the visual cortex in the 1990s, and I want to say that one of the authors was Kawasaki. And I, again, I don't. I hope I'm not misstating that. But in any case, it was 
found fairly early. It had to be done using difficult-to-do intracellular recordings, particularly difficult-to-do, you know, much before the 1990s. And, uh, and so it just wasn't looked at. And then when it was first looked at, at many synapses, it wasn't found. Um, and as I mentioned in my seminar today, for some of those of you who heard it, um, there, there even was the argument made that GABAergic synaptic transmission in the nervous system shouldn't potentiate or, or depress, that it's meant to be kind of a constant force inhibiting neurons and keeping things sort of damped down, and that you wouldn't really want to change that much, that the excitatory synapses can dance up and down, but that the inhibition should stay rather constant. And I think that that may be true in some regions, um, but I think... So I think it's been discovered. On the other hand, when I was saying that there are fewer examples of GABAergic plasticity, I have to say there are literally thousands of examples of excitatory LTP. So probably even being a small subset of that is still a fair number of labs who have looked at this process in different brain areas. What would Heb say about it? I mean, the idea, a lot of this stuff is driven by ideas like the Hebian idea. And Heb would say... If input A participates in making output cell B fire, then the connection will be strengthened. So how does an inhibitory synapse ever participate in making anything fire uh, in a way that could be strengthened? So I think for those people who are obsessed with the Hebb's view, sure. that in, uh, LTP inhibitory synapses makes no sense. But that, and that's a great insight, too, because... That's actually the reason I think a lot of um, people who are interested in psychology and learning theory got interested in LTP in the first place was because the idea that the nervous system had developed a way to associate two pieces of information in this really interesting way that Hebb had predicted in the 1950s was that, that's why they got interested in it. That was really cool. And that remains really cool. I think it is fascinating. But as I tried to say again in the introduction to my talk today, I feel like the nervous system doesn't just have to associate two pieces of information. That's not the only kind of learning that there is. We, we know that. Um, and, and Hebb's idea of how it's done is certainly not the only way. It, now that we have more mechanisms, there have, I mean, during my scientific lifetime, there have been many examples of LTP and also especially LTD, depressing of synapses for long periods of time that certainly don't follow the, the Hebbian rule. And, and they may have very different functions, and, and therefore, possibly, you could call them less interesting. Maybe they're less interesting. They don't, they don't, they don't do learning, which I think we're all fascinated by. So I, but I think that doesn't make them less important to the organism or certainly to pathologies that arise. But with, with, uh, so I was involved in some of this about what you'd expect. For, if you have push-pull between excitation and inhibition, uh, then you can excite a cell by withdrawing inhibition or giving more excitation, right? So there's a version of this in the visual cortex push-pull where a heavy and inhibitory synapse would be that if it was ineffective at stopping a cell, uh, then it would weaken, right? So it's the opposite. And that's that was some version of, of heavy. And so if they if you fire, you know, anyway, you were effective at... You can do any combinations of pluses and minuses, so you can get a Hebbian-like thing out of an inhibitory uh, synapse, which makes them, in the information processing, just like excitatory synapses. But there's also this other thing of this normalization of keeping things damp, where you think of excitation and inhibition going against each other. Uh, 
and they give different, quite different views of what you expect, when and how and what triggers the, the LPP. So your version of it is the, has nothing to do with the relationship between the inhibitory input and the output cell. It has to do with the excitatory input okay, and the output cell. Yeah. Can you give so, us a little okay, of your version of LTP? It is not like hey, the inhibitory <coughs> neuron can actually have its receptors blocked and still undergo LTP. Mm-hmm. So it has under those circumstances it has no effect whatsoever on the on the post. So can can you describe uh, the the actual phenomenon a little bit for yeah. our listeners the heterosynaptic sure. nature of the presynaptic sort of just a sure. little snapshot. So we first identified this form of plasticity, and boy, I wish I could have pictures for the listeners because I do things visually. But if you picture a postsynaptic neuron, that's the dopamine cell in the VTA, and then imagine an excitatory input onto it and an inhibitory input onto it. When we first characterized this form of plasticity, we found that it was induced after driving all of, the, all of those synapses, both the excitatory and the inhibitory, at the same time. Um, and we assumed based on our, you know, hippocampal, uh, bias that it was being induced by activation of the GABAergic synapses themselves. But by a process of experimental elimination, we found out that you didn't, you didn't need those. Those receptors, as you just pointed out, could be blocked during the induction period. And we could still see the LTP GABA, as we call it, um, at, after, after that effect was, uh, was restored. So we eventually narrowed it down to that you needed an activation of the excitatory pathway um, in, the, in that experiment, that high-frequency simulation of those was what caused the LTP at the neighboring synapses. This is called heterosynaptic, activated by, induced by one pathway's activation, um, postsynaptic neuron involvement perhaps, and then the other set of synapses that didn't participate in the induction being maintained, uh, maintaining the plasticity that in this case increased release of GABA. And um, to get at your question, I want to, I just want to say that there have since Hebb's time been many examples now of heterosynaptic forms of plasticity that don't have to be, uh, they don't have to be synapse specific. So I don't think ours is um, particularly unusual. I think there are lots of examples like this. Endocannabinoid uh, release is one example. Whenever you have a case where something in the postsynaptic neuron, some kind of second messenger is leading to production, particularly of a retrograde message, I think all bets are off. The spread of that molecule or or whatever the real a retrograde message is through the tissue is going to determine who gets affected by it. And in some cases, there is targeted effect based on activity-dependent activity requirements at the presynaptic terminals that are hit by that. And in some cases, I'm not sure there are. I think there's, you know, anyone in the vicinity is going to be affected, and you can have that. So I think it probably does serve a very different purpose in those cases. Um, and so, what is, what is, um, so what's your definition of activity? Because um, in your experiments, you stimulated... Um, and you blocked the postsynaptic receptors, right? So, but presumably, the afferent that you're stimulating is still releasing GABA, still being activated, still being depolarized, still getting right. calcium coming into the terminals, right. and um, the retrograde message may still be um, hitting those terminals, and the activity of those terminals is still necessary. Uh, it's just that you're blocking 
the effect of the activation of this terminal. So is, is, there, a, is there a difference between you know, the, our, our postsynaptic reading of activity or, and the activity itself? No, I think you're, you're precisely right. I think what we haven't done is tested your hypothesis. So, so one hypothesis is what, what we ruled out was that you that the GABA-A receptors were necessary for this process. You don't need postsynaptic GABA receptors to get this plasticity. That's what we were ruling out with that experiment. What we failed to test or rule out was whether or not you need to have uh, activity, as you might call it, that is terminal releasing transmitter, having calcium come in, having active potentials. We ruled out, we didn't rule out that, that activity of that sort or activation of that terminal is still necessary for the nitric oxide to produce potentiation. And I think we talked about one experiment that I don't see, I, I don't understand our own results unless there is some kind of specificity in terms of what, which presynaptic terminals are active at the same time. But we haven't tested it explicitly ever. Um, and what, so you put on what, what result was that? <laughs> that result, I'm sorry, that result was, um, so imagine that the VTA is a field of many dopamine cells that probably overlap, and there are some GABAergic cells in there too. So we are recording from one dopamine neuron. We put into that one dopamine neuron a calcium chelator, BAPTA, that chelates up all the calcium. That is, it binds it and makes it so there's no free calcium around. Um, to test the role of postsynaptic calcium in LTP-GABA induction. Now, we did that because we think that nitric oxide synthase makes nitric oxide and that that's present in the dopamine neurons. Um, and therefore, chelating calcium would prevent that from making the retrograde messenger. So we carried out that experiment. We delivered high-frequency simulation to all the afferents, as usual, and we didn't get LTP-GABA. So that, the conclusion that I just made is right. That is, LTP-GABA depends on postsynaptic calcium, and probably that's because it's inhibiting nitric oxide synthase activation. But it also says that that nest of dopamine neurons sitting around near this synapse in three dimensions are not releasing enough nitric oxide themselves to affect the terminal that's nearby. So I think that also says that um, the signal may not spread very far, something like that. It doesn't address the activity dependence. Yeah. Is it possible it's just scavenged up really quickly by something? It is possible. It doesn't last long, but yeah. I've heard it. I've heard people say it lasts as long as a few seconds, so that's not that short either. Right. Um, so when you just put nitric oxide generator in the or nitric oxide itself in the tissue, you can see that by itself is enough to give you the right. LTP GABA. The presynaptic elements, I guess, may or may not be firing during that time. Likely that the cut axons from places like nucleus accumbens are probably not firing in the slice at the moment that you put that stuff on. But local Inhibitory neurons may be spontaneously active in the slice. Are they spontaneously active? They are spontaneously active in the slice, but I have to point out that in the all the experiments we've done, we have never not stimulated once every 10 seconds with our electrical stimulator. So That's the experiment we have to do, is just put on the nitric oxide donor, Wait wash it off, or put on a scavenger of it, which we've done, and then... You know, and then stimulate. That's the real acid test, and we just haven't done that. It's on the list. It's a good experiment. We don't know. Yeah, that's a, that'd be cool. So why would the system be built this way? So the picture is that you've got activity at the excitatory synapse, and then maybe there's a lag, and the GABAergic potentiation kicks in. Is, it, is the idea that it, this is like 
sculpting the time course of the excitatory activity, or is it about you know maybe integrating spatial inputs, selecting them, or I mean, does this could this have something to do with bursting since you're here and is there maybe a spatial element? I mean, how do you see this sort of working, big picture wise? Uh, well, I think that the Potentiation of the excitatory synapses will happen as a result of high-frequency stimulation that's been shown by others. Um, and our LTP-GABA will be induced almost on the same time scale. I mean, it's, it's very fast. It's not like it's going to lag like you were suggesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it may lag by a, a matter of milliseconds, but not, I mean, or even hundreds, but not seconds or minutes or anything like that. So it's a very, I think they both, they both are being induced together. But if we imagine that an excited, it's again, it's hard without a picture. If we imagine that the excitatory terminals are right next to the inhibitory terminals, the excitatory terminals get potentiated by the high frequency stimulation. Nitric oxide spreads to nearby GABAergic terminals on that in that same region, um, so they're inhibited. Uh, sorry, their LTP GABA is induced. So now we have matching LTP of the excitatory and matching LTP of the local inhibitory. But the way the brain really works is that you don't have to have simultaneous excitatory input and inhibitory input. So if a, an excitatory-only input comes through, that's still going to be potentiated. Now if a GABAergic input only comes through, that will be potentiated. So only when the two are co-activated will they, in some sense, cancel each other out. And you could imagine that slight... Uh, temporal mismatches could give you bigger and, and interestingly sculpted responses that weren't there before. So this is beyond me. We got to look at this guy here and see what, see what the mo the modelers think about all this because I don't. I, I this is beyond my level. <laughs> so you're referring to how the asymmetry that you were in your talk about how calcium entry from other sources outside of an NDA would be able to potentially potentially potentiate the GABA, uh, the LTP GABA, induce the LTP GABA, and so you would have a shift in balance in the other, so you would have a shift in balance, and that could happen prior to, or in the, obviously in the absence of any glutamatergic release or stimulation, and then that response, that would shape the response in a different way. You would get a different uh, shape of response, uh, something like that in that situation, with that, and you would, if, then obviously you would give a different situation, you would get a different situation, uh, arrangement of balance of than you could achieve by mm. simultaneous stimulation, and that perhaps that could be some other mechanism of feedback from some other, uh, uh, some other main mechanism of feedback beyond simply just yeah controlling uh, counterbalancing the excitatory inputs. So in theory, I don't see why that wouldn't happen. And there's you know there's lots of evidence that so I alluded in my talk to the fact that when a dopamine neuron fires, there's a big voltage-gated calcium component to the action potential, um, more so than other neurons I've recorded from, um, and that's been studied by other people. But also, just talking to Carlos this morning, he was reminding me that and when he was in John Williams' lab, they did a study where they bath applied compounds that would uh, increase calcium. Um, so they put on aspartate, which is going to let calcium in through glutamate receptors, and they put on norepinephrine, which is going to release calcium from intracellular stores through a metabotropic mechanism. And both of those things, I would predict, would cause inhibition of the local uh, GABAergic inputs that would spread to different extents down that dendrite, and yes, could, could create just the situation you're describing, but we haven't tested it yet. I just don't see any reason why that calcium should be different, except 
should say that NMDA receptors are literally scaffolded to the plasma membrane by the same protein that scaffolds nitric oxide synthase. So there may possibly be preferential uh, connection there between NMDA receptor-mediated calcium entry nitric oxide. That's been shown once in cerebellum in another system, and so it's theoretically possible. So maybe you'd have to kind of flood calcium in to see that. But again, boy, do we have to do that experiment. It's just such an obvious and good one. So let's talk about drugs. So drugs and stress <laughs> compromise the SCABA LTP, and it's a persistent effect. You, uh, That's correct. Right. What possible mechanisms could be responsible for blocking GABA LTP in this persistent way? Um, I have to tell you, we really don't know how any of the drugs actually block GABA LTP. The drug about which we know the most is morphine. So morphine binds to opioid receptors. We know that within 24 hours of delivery of morphine, nitric oxide no longer is effective at potentiating GABA or synapses. Um, and that means that if you try to induce LTP-GABA, it's not there. And it's not that it's maximally activated. It's actually not there. It's not available to be potentiated. You can put nitric oxide on, and it won't potentiate the synapse. But you can bypass the next molecule, guanylate cyclase, that nitric oxide activates by applying cyclic GMP, and you can rescue the release of the persistent release of GABA. You can cause potentiation of the GABAergic synapse by putting on cyclic GMP. So what I the reason I think that occurs is because I think guanylate cyclase either um, becomes less functionally active or there are many fewer molecules by 24 hours later. Um, and, and I say that because we did another study where we looked at different drugs that directly press guanylate cyclase hard, and they, uh, if we put on a drug that's just activating guanylate cyclase a lot, even in morphine-treated animals, uh, the slices from those animals the next day, we can pump out enough cyclic GMP to eventually potentiate the synapses. So some of the enzymes there, if you push it hard enough, you can make it work. So it's not that it's deaf, if you will, to nitric oxide, but it, uh, it Nitric oxide that we exogenously apply or that the system can provide is not sufficient to potentiate the synapses. So we're pushing it in an artificial way. But mechanistically, it seems like something happens to guanylate cyclase. That seems to be where morphine works. We have literally not looked at other drugs' effects to know how they work. And we, don't, we still don't really know how the mu opioid receptor, which we know is the target of morphine in this case, um, we don't know how the mu opioid receptor mediates its effect on guanylate cyclase. There's, that's, there's nothing on that in the literature. And we haven't actually quantified levels of guanylate cyclase in our tissue or done any biochemical approach to look at that directly. These effects of acute doses of drugs, are, they're proliferating. So people saw changes in epi to NMDA ratio after a single dose of cocaine, and that thing lasts a long time, right? It lasts... Five to ten days. Five to ten days. And then there's this thing, which also lasts a long time and seems to kind of have a similar time course effect on GABA. So I'm just wondering if there's, if there uh, psychologists like studying animal behavior have seen that after a single acute dose of cocaine or morphine or whatever, then for five days the animals... Something. Um, you know, they're... Con their uh, valuation of things in the world or their motivation level or anything like that uh, is changed by these things. 
these seem like huge changes to me. Like you change your AMPA to NMDA ratio. Maybe I'm, it's just because I'm a neuroscience nerd, but to me that seems like a big, a big deal. A big deal. <laughs> and you lose your GABA LTP, it seems like a big deal to me. So it seems like 24 hours after a, a dose of drug that's now worn off, you should be able to put the animal in a progressive ratio thing in the jig or something like that and see a difference. Yeah. Is there a difference? Has anybody looked at this stuff? Not that I'm aware of. I don't know, maybe, Julie, maybe you know. I'm not aware of it either yeah. um, after one After dose. a single dose. And it's, we, Carl's and I were talking about this again this morning. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And many people have had one dose of these drugs, let's say a dose of nicotine, and certainly the, there's no perception that there's anything different. But we were, we were hypothesizing, I don't know if this is, is realistic, but that if the, goal, if the job of the VTA is to mediate recognition of something that's salient, something that's important, that the next time you see it, you better react. Either you better go eat it or you better go take that drug or you better go uh, run away. If that's something you want to pay attention to, that having a strong experience like the drug changed the circuitry there um, could put the whole system into a state where it's, quote-unquote, paying more attention to any inputs that are coming in. Yes, maybe for a period of days. I like to think that it would be better if it were more specific, you know, that only certain inputs were potentiating. And I don't think we really know quite enough about the system yet to... To, to know whether you know only specific inputs really are what what must be true. I will just say this: a lot of people are doing very nice work now, separating groups of cells within the VTA and which cells project to the VTA and all that. But the truth is, no one ever would have seen changes in AMPA NMDA ratio or loss of LTP GABA if they were just if they if they didn't occur in most of the cells that most people target with their electrodes. It's happening very broadly. So I take your point really seriously. I think you're right. It seems crazy to me that your brain would act like that. And and the effect of drugs is is scary and remarkable in one, one exposure. So but, with chronic... Uh, sorry, go ahead. But it, it seems like... So you've seen the same effects with these acute uh, uh, stressors, right? So long-term, days-long effects. Yeah. And so... Try to think about why, why your brain might want to do this. So if you have something like, I don't know, just had like a tiger pop up and you went crazy, it may take you several days to figure out what to do about this, That's exactly this, right. this crazy situation that you've been in, right? Because it doesn't necessarily come up again. Hopefully, it doesn't come up right away, right? So Denard was t- talking about that at lunch, and he had some two good ideas. I so I had, so this, I had an idea about this at lunch with the other students where, I mean, we often, anecdotally, we know of the bad breakup where you had a really negative stressor and you want to eat ice cream. And you, you kind of home in on something rewarding, positive. You go home where you're safe, where you that's and you eat something that tastes good. And maybe if you were stressed or if you're in danger and in pain, you will gravitate towards things that are positive, like food and shelter and mates or people of who you feel safe around. And then maybe this is maybe that's some the brain is somehow saying, evolving to go home if you had a bad day. Yeah, I think it's uh, we're kind of talking about two things, right? One is some ex- single experience that we have, and that's going to change amputin NDA ratios, uh, LTP GABA, and um, and then drug addiction, which completely different thing, right? So 
like Julie said earlier, um, we don't get addicted after one exposure to a shot of tequila or something like that. Um, but in order to become addicted, you do have to go through that first shot of tequila and then a few more and a few more after that. So it's, I don't know, maybe it's just a matter of degrees. Is, is, uh, is there any difference in physiology and dopaminergic neurons, whether it's synaptic or excitability or some molecular signal that is the difference between animals that have received some amount of cocaine but aren't actually addicted, however you want to define that in a rat, um, versus animals that are addicted. So, I don't know, I think perhaps in these paradigms where they have these short-term access and long-term access um, of cocaine, right? So the short-term access are these animals that get cocaine for about two hours a day, and the long-term access are the animals that get cocaine for about six hours a day. And it turns out that the ones that get it for six hours a day become addicted according to our whatever definitions of addiction. Um, so at least on, at the level of the dopamine cells in the DTA, are we aware of any quantitative or qualitative differences among those two groups of animals so that we can make a difference, differentiation between everyday experience and actual development of addiction? I don't, I don't know, know the answer to that. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't know the answer to the part about excitability, we haven't used yeah. paradigms like that. Um, I think there's good evidence that self-administering drugs to animals, uh, for having animals self-administer drugs can be have different effects than giving them passively or having the experimenter give the drug. So I think there, there are a number of things that are, you know, that are could be experimentally introduced into protocols. They make everything more complicated and, and more difficult to do. So everything hasn't been done and then looked at. I mean, we do the simplest thing. We go in the lab. We will inject an animal with a drug once, and that's fairly simple to do. And then we'll go look at what the neurons look like the next day or the next week. And that's a lot easier than training an animal to learn to self-administer the drug for some period of time. And, um, and I'm afraid I've probably admitted today that how, how much of a reductionist I am and how much easier it is for me to study something that's simple. And even looking, even looking 24 hours after something that has been done to the animal introduces such a black box of things that could be changing. It's, it's, you know, it is bewildering, and, and we can see that we don't even understand that. So that's not to say we shouldn't do the other, and in many ways we should do that first. That's that's the right thing to do is to look. I think the fascinating thing would be to look at the, that line between before the animal is addicted and after the animal is addicted, and that's always a hard thing to draw in an animal model. But I think it would be good to look there. And I, I don't think it's been looked at, and I'm not sure exactly. I know Kube's lab has really done a lot with that, and I don't know what yeah. they've looked at physiologically. So in, the, in animals that are addicted, by whatever measure, uh, you know, people in the lab use... It's so easy to just say by whatever measure when actually we don't, we don't have any measure yeah. at all. That's right. So animals who self-administer chronically... Uh, but they'll just take drugs just like any human will take the so same So do drugs. those guys, when you, when you record from their um, VTA dopamine neurons, do those guys show uh, LTP-GABA? And is it after, extinct, after extinction, if, if it's gone, it comes back, right? I mean, so, th so this is part of the stuff about relapse that I want to get into with you. And then stress, actually, sort of, is that right, first of all? Do they, uh, do they show? They, so LTP-GABA is blocked after one exposure to any of these drugs. AMPA and MDA, so LTP is triggered at the excitatory synapses after one exposure, but the same amount of LTP is still triggered if you give the animal six days of cocaine. So it's not like there's more LTP or anything like that. 
Um, and what we do know is then after extinguishing an animal from cocaine for eight or nine days, uh, they do have LTP-GABA available again. It's as if it's recovered. We, uh, so, yes, that is correct. And so then said it. adding a stressor is, this is sort of now getting into this model of stress-induced reinstatement. Um, and you've actually done some behavior that bears out potentially that interfering with some of these mechanisms may have behavioral effects on um, drug-seeking behavior in extinction. I mean, in a reinstatement um, model. So can you talk about some of that? Yeah, so just to recap what, um, what we found. We found uh, a drug that could prevent... So LTP-GABA, we found, is lo lost 24 hours after an acute stressor, which is a five-minute stress in cold water. Um, just five minutes, and then we wait 24 hours, prepare brain slices, and look at LTP-GABA, and LTP-GABA is absent. It's absent five days later as well, it's, and it's recovered by 10 days later. Um, however, we found a compound which blocks kappa opioid receptors that if we give it before the stressor, LTP-GABA is not lost. And we thought it would be very interesting to then take that compound into an animal model of relapse. So we got together with friends at the University of Pennsylvania, Chris Pearson and Lisa Beyond, who did the work. They trained animals to self-administer cocaine for 19 days, then they would press the lever and not get cocaine. So pretty soon they reduced their lever pressing significantly. Um, and then they were even either delivered this drug into the VTA or they weren't delivered the drug. They were given a vehicle injection. Um, then they were given the cold water swim stress. And then the investigators let them go press the lever as if they were going to get cocaine. They found that the animals pretreated with this kappa receptor antagonist in the VTA did not reinstate their lever pressing. They didn't, quote-unquote, relapse to seeking cocaine in that model, uh, whereas the animals that had received vehicle in the VTA did go ahead and increase their lever pressing. Um, I should point out that the animals were not getting any cocaine when they were increasing their lever pressing. They were just doing it. We'd like to anthropomorphize that it's because they're seeking the drug or they're craving it or they're trying to feel at home or whatever <laughs> they're doing. No, I mean, I think that's reasonable. They, they're... Their behavior is different, and the NORBNI, this kappa receptor antagonist, prevented that when it was given to the VTA before the stress. So uh, I would like to, I don't know how much you buy into this, um, uh, re the reward prediction error idea about dopamine cells, sure. but it's a very popular idea. And uh, while I've been listening to you talk about GABA and EPA and receptors and that kind of stuff, I've been trying to think how these things sort of fit into that view. Are dopamine cells learning the reward prediction problem, the association between the predictor and the reward, or are they just parroting some input that has learned it somewhere from somewhere upstream. Yes. Well, you know, I'm the wrong person to ask that. I was going to ask you that later. <laughs> but because I want to know, and I want to know what you think. I, what, what I, what I've always thought that their error was that the drive was being produced somewhere else. And that, that so the really cool thing about the dopamine error is that, uh, the error signal is that if the animal is initially releasing dopamine as a result of, or increasing dopamine cell firing as a, as a response to the reward, it eventually 
uh, stops doing that and releases dopamine or fires in response to the cue that predicts the reward, which is a really very interesting thing. I've always thought that happens upstream of the dopamine neurons before that the signal, that that learning, if you will, happens somewhere else probably in the prefrontal cortex. That's what I've always thought in my simple-minded way. Um, so, boy, how the GABA signal fits into that is, is I have to say, is beyond me. Um, and I don't, I don't know what losing, so if I don't know what the LTP is for, I don't know how losing it is. But even if the, I mean, so, yeah, I agree with you. I've always thought that the, that the part of the brain that learned that association was somewhere else and was, and the dopamine cell was reporting on that. But my faith in that is completely shaken by the, all of this plasticity that's happening on the dopamine cell itself. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? And so, uh, if that's, if that, that plasticity is happening, the whoever it is that's creating the signal upstream had better know that's happening and adjust the signal so that the dopamine cell still does the right thing, or that plasticity ought to be participating somehow and, and making that whole thing work. So to reconcile the plasticity of septic plasticity on dopamine cells with the reward prediction error calculation being done in the cortex or in the striatum or someplace is Public to me. I can't figure out exactly how to do it. And it's just kind of passing the buck anyways, right? So if you're interested in reward prediction error, and it's actually being generated somewhere else, then you should probably go study that somewhere else. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, that's um. true. The, the only thing I would say is, and, and I'm, I know you guys have both thought about this, is that if you, if the animal learns that the light predicts the reward then it will be having an increase in dopamine cell firing during the light, during the light. And then if it doesn't get the reward, it hyperpolarizes. Like, it's surprised, okay? And that surprise is indicated by a reduction in firing rate and it presumably an inhibition. So there's, there's even a delay. There's GABA. Like waited and gave it a fair chance of yeah. giving him the reward first. So, mm -hmm. so, so there's your potential for a GABAergic input. Right. So again, I, I, I lose track after three neurons. It's hard for me to do that. That's why a model is always good. But if, if that is happening from GABA locally into the VTA, um, then, then you could see how I mean, that, then it's almost about timing as much as anything. If the two come in at once, then maybe uh, one wins, but if anyway, I can't. I can't. I'm, not, I'm not answering it well. I think I'm out of my depth. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I mean, it is a great mechanism for creating the for creating that pause and for suppressing the response yeah. to the reward. And it is a something that gets learned and it's kind of general and it has to do with who's been excited. All of those things sound like sort of the right ingredients for yeah. local inhibition. Health. And besides. Um, Kind of acting like uh, dopamine neurons or any neuron for that matter is just some dumb reporter of what's being given, you know, what's being fed into it. But then the neurons fitting into that are pretty much the same thing. They have action potentials, yeah. the sodium channels. Oh, it's just forebrain chauvinism. Yeah, it's, it's forebrain chauvinism. Four they're just reporting whatever is inputting to them. <laughs> and then the other parts are input, just reporting what they're inputting into them. At some point, some neuron somewhere... <laughs> has to take responsibility. Has to take responsibility. <laughs> and, and some neuron has to do some kind of computation. No, but can I just say something that makes yeah. me think differently about that? And this is, I'm just going to throw this out there. So 
I think that the that cortical regions are set up to make those kinds of computations and decisions and that they really receive inputs that carry different information. I think that dopamine neurons, I just bet you that the release of dopamine from one dopamine cell makes not a whit of difference to the nucleus accumbens at all. It is not synapse-specific. We know that. It's released like a hormone. It floats around. Maybe it does something. I just bet if you don't get a bunch of dopamine released at once, it doesn't make any difference. This evidence that you need a burst in a neuron to do anything that has been around for 30 years is very suggestive that that's true. So I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure exactly that careful inputs of, you know, an excitatory input onto one dopamine neuron or, you know, one GABAergic input onto the dopamine neuron by itself is going to be a huge thing. That may not be where that computation happens. I don't know if that's a good argument or not. Maybe just undercut studying plasticity in the VTA as well. <laughs> that's right. I'll cut my own head off. <laughs> but is it, you mean, if you go to the reward prediction error, I mean, you could, you could imagine a, a dissociation between deciding on when, what predicts what, and when that signal is, versus the effect of how much it cares about, or how much the animal cares about what to do about it, right? And then, or the relative of, of sizes of bursts and pauses, whether you're, you know, how disappointed are you that you don't get a reward versus how excited you are if you do get a reward. You could regulate that balance about balance of excitation and inhibition, maybe in the dopamine neurons, and the gain of the output about how much difference it makes, mm -hmm. how much that spreads, and you may want to regulate that with lots of things like stress or the past or whatever, without changing the computation of who decides on when the prediction error and whatever is. I mean, that's one dissociation. What, what to do about it. Yeah, something, what to, something entirely different. I, right. I think that's a great thing to say. Yeah, I, I like that. It makes more sense to me. Well, thanks for being with us. This was really, really cool. And um, thanks... To all of you guys, thanks to Julie Cowers, has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you very much.